He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 9, 2022. Our episode 104, for those of you math majors, that's right, it's the end of our second year. Mazel tov. We've got a tremendous show with a professor of mine who taught a woman named Liz Cheney in the political science department at the Colorado College, and he was just terrific. Not only as a professor, but especially as a guest, this man has lived quite a life, and he has a lot of wisdom. I hope you will enjoy it. We've had one big show after another, Kyle Clark, episode 100, Joe O'Day and Judith Berg, episode 101, then Governor Polis and his Republican opponent, Heidi Ganahl, episode 102, Dan Grunfeld, by the grace of the game. That was episode 103. I hope you did not miss that. Also, Rachel Gunders featured. And we were talking about Jewish people and the dangers they faced throughout history. And I'm worried about talk radio and the anti-Semitic turn it has taken. I have talked about Peter Boyles in the past, and I will talk about him again today because he's back. I'm sure that feels great for the people still working over at 710 KNUS, even over at KHOW, where he used to be the top-rated morning guy. They must be looking over their shoulder, but the man is trying to make amends because he was the biggest trumper around for a long time. Then when the lawsuit started flying, he took to the other side, and now he's down on talk radio. Same sort of thing that he castigated me for back in the day. But we've talked about that. I want to advance the ball, and we will today in that regard. As per usual, our troubadour Dave Gunders has an amazing song, Somebody Who Knows It All. Maybe that could apply to a lot of people. Peter Boyles, maybe me. We can all be arrogant. Maybe you have a child who thinks he knows it all. But then again, Bob Levy kind of does know it all when it comes to political science and the American experience. Hell, one of his ancestors' direct lineage was a great buddy of Abraham Lincoln. But I know Peter Boyles, I know George Brockler, I know Dan Kaplis, tremendously disappointed that they would not respond when Donald Trump's criminality was made clear in impeachment number one. Instead, they took the Tucker Carlson approach, which was, hey, it was no big deal. What did Trump call it? A perfect call? And that Zelensky guy, that Jewish leader of Ukraine, he's not trustworthy. He's corrupt. Don't you know they all are? So what's the big deal? Sometimes I think that Tucker Carlson is a supervillain. He's the author of that replacement theory. Maybe not the author, but the biggest proponent. And he's a white supremacist leader. 
Listen to what he had to say just the other day as he talks about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and how he should be prosecuted as opposed to Trump, who made that great call to Zelensky, a perfect call, and take note of the evil laugh. My God, this guy could be a supervillain. Now, a functioning Congress would investigate this immediately. The last president was impeached for, for what? Having a phone call with some corrupt Ukrainian politician? <laughs> but no, they can't be bothered. They're still yelping about January 6th. It was an insurrection. They're trying to ban your hunting rifle. So the White House is able to ignore the whole thing. Anyway, I promised you the return of Peter Boyles, and it happened. On Mondays, he's going to do a streaming show. They promised some interactive feature, but all I could find was five minutes. And when you listen to that five minutes, a lot of it had to do with him taking on talk radio, sort of like I did in the wake of the first impeachment that nobody would talk about. Boyle's had this to say about the villains in history, including an anti-Semite named Father Coughlin. Coughlin, out of Michigan, as I recall, was a Catholic priest, and he and Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, part of the America First crowd that would have backed Hitler over America. And Peter Boyles does know his history, My God, the people who are currently on talk radio, they never have authors on because they don't read books, not that much. They're busy. They're busy spreading some bad news that I don't like, as evidenced by my sound bites today. Let's start with their leader, Peter Boyles, who advertises for Dan Kaplis, who is part of welcoming George Brockler, although I'm not sure that will last. Listen to Peter Boyles. I've been talking about his anti-Semitism. He talks about other anti-Semites. Today, folks, I've had, had more than my fair share of talk radio. Now, I'm a history geek, an amateur history reader, but let me ask you some questions of people. Do you know the names of Lord Haha, Axis Sally, Charles Coughlin, Tokyo Rose? Some of you may remember Hanoi Hannah. Others of you whose moms and dads or grandparents might remember even Ezra Pound. These people had radio shows. Coughlin was a horrible anti-Semite, had a radio show during the Great American Depression. He blamed Jews and did these horrible things. He was a Catholic priest. And now Peter Boyle's talks, and the volume's low on this. I can't help the quality of what they put out on YouTube, but you get the drift. He talks about how these propagandists, these anti-Semites wind up in the dustbins of history, but how many people do they have to destroy in the process? And remember when Boyles was such buddies with Corcoran as Corcoran told lies about me and Brian Stelter fixing up a conspiracy, and Boyles went along with that as Corcoran was his best buddy? But now this talk from Peter Boyles isn't aimed at me. It's aimed at Corcoran and talk radio world where, just as the New York Times pointed out this week, if the hosts won't put down the bullshit about a rigged election, then what hope do we have? Brockler takes calls one after the other from the rigged election crowd, and he says, okay, thanks for your call. Dan Kaplis venerates Jenna Ellis, who was the architect 
of Stop the Steal. Now she's been subpoenaed down to Georgia because she tried to steal the votes of those black people in Georgia. There's a lot of white supremacy here, and it's crappy. Listen to Peter Boyles talk about the bad road you go down if you follow the cults, the cult, C-U-L-T, the cults of talk radio. They're in the dustbin of history. These people need to join them. People supporting films that don't exist. People supporting nonsense. Someone called it playing whack-a-mole. Conservative talk radio, the message is clear. Democrats cheat. Didn't happen here, except for Tina Peters and a handful of real crazies. Isn't that interesting? The time has to come where talk radio is going to be faced in the Senate of the United States of America, just like in the scandals in the 50s. Remember, it wasn't in the FCC, it was in the Senate, and people were gunning for them. So time will come, and close personal friends of mine, John Eastman, God, we're close, we type, we talk, we text. John Eastman taking the fifth more than Frank Costello. Now in the eye of the storm. It's coming closer to Trump. My prediction is Donald Trump will announce his candidacy for president, and once again, the Lord ha-has of the world will have at it again. You be very careful who you listen to. Do not get pulled into these cults of talk radio. So you can listen to the whole thing. It's not much longer. It's on YouTube. Just put in KNUS, Peter Boyles. And if you go to the YouTube page, the first comment in response to it is by a woman named Priscilla Ron, who has become a public figure because she's vice chair, vice president of the Colorado Republican Party. She's apparently a teacher as well, public school teacher. My God. I'm worried about this woman, and I'll tell you why. She came on with George Brockler's show, Christy Burton Brown, her, Christy Burton Brown, the president, the chairman of the Colorado GOP, who was the president of FEC, that uh, militia-affiliated group out of Bandamere, Joe Oltman's group. So you got Christy Burton Brown, and then you've got this Priscilla Ron. You've got George Brockler, who has turned that show into just full-time political cheerleading show for the Republican Party. And he won't talk about Trump, even though that's the issue of the day. He says he's the crime guy. Have you heard him talk about Cassidy Hutchinson? Not in the least. We talk about her on my show a lot. Read my Colorado Sun column analyzing Cassidy Hutchinson and how she is the linchpin in proving the truth about this president's seditious conspiracy against the United States. But just as with the first impeachment in the Ukrainian shakedown, if a tree falls in the forest, is anybody going to hear it? If it's not on right-wing radio, I hope it breaks through. I think uh, Pat Cipollone will break through. But the guy who's been the leader since Alan Berg got murdered, Peter Boyles, he is aware of history. He's calling out talk radio. Yet Priscilla Ron and Christy Burton Brown, who are frequently on Boyle's show, well, they just love them some Peter Boyle's. And so Priscilla Ron welcomes Peter Boyle's back. You can see it on the YouTube page. Then she gets welcomed to George Brockler's show. And she says some amazing things that I need you to hear. Because she starts castigating the other side for name-calling. And then you'll hear Brockler go off in that high voice of his. It gets so high sometimes. I don't know what's up with that. You'll hear it start from the first words. But when he 
imitates Jared Polis, then he goes into some gay high voice, whatever kind of slur he can bring down on Jared Polis. I've noticed the venom of these guys on the radio against Polis, the first gay Colorado governor, first Jewish Colorado governor. We've taken notice of their slams on him, the voices they use. But it was Peter Boyles who really brought the nastiness toward Jared Polis. And for a long time there, he kept referring to Jared Polis as Pontius Polis. This is when I was still working there. And I tried to think of any justification beyond anti-Semitism for using that construction of words, and I could not find it. And I called it out, and eventually a lot of people stopped using it, but not Priscilla Ron, vice chair of the Colorado Republican Party, who says to George Brockler, hey, Pontius Polis, and what does Brockler say? Boom, yeah, boom, yeah. He puts the exclamation point on it, on the anti-Semitic slur. Or you explain to me why Pontius Polis makes sense. If you want to say he's imperial, you could call him Emperor Polis. You could call him a bunch of different things, but you reference Pontius Pilate, who was there during the crucifixion of Jesus in a decision-making role, and you don't think that has anything to do with the anti-Semitism, the homophobia, the white supremacy that lurks in the heart of a lot of people? I'd like to hear Peter Boyles apologize for saying Pontius Polis. I'd like to hear Priscilla Ron apologize and Brockler with his boom yeah as he spends every day just running down Jared Polis. It's sickening. It's stupid. Listen to this exchange between Brockler, who I swear goes off his gun analogy here, metaphor, whatever. Just doesn't make any sense. Not to me. See if it does to you. And pay attention for the Pontius Polis and Brockler's stamp of approval. And it's love fest with her afterwards as they talk about the blood orange candle scents. Ugh. Candles. First off, I don't know if you've seen the latest thing, Priscilla. There are still 10% of the people polled who think America's on the right track. Who are those people? Have you met any of them? <laughs> Well, a couple of trolls on my social media. Yeah. I, uh, they believe I want the, the next interview that has to happen is please tell me what's going well. Please tell me the thing you point to and go, yes, this is exactly what I voted for when I voted for Biden. Well, no, you're making a great argument. They're not really talking about what's going well. They're just attacking conservatives. Um, and, and that's, that's all they have to offer because when you push back, they can't have the conversation when, when I provide data and evidence of the things that are not going well, they either start name calling or they end the conversation. And so I, I find it hard pressed to, to believe that anybody thinks that things are going well, unless they're an elitist and a millionaire and they're really out of touch with what's going on. Um, and we've seen this even on the there was an interview where someone said it's the it's the agenda. We have to stick with the agenda, even though people are going broke, putting gas in their car. Um, this is the new world order agenda. We have to just suffer through it. Uh, pardon me. No, we don't. We need to stop the, and course correct. And that's going to happen starting in this November election. 
I think it's going to be tough for the governor to run on the here are the good things I've done. It sounds like the message that they have right now is one of minimizing the negative impact they've had. Like what I've heard is the the mainstream media rushing to his defense to say, you know, he didn't do that badly with COVID. Like it's not he was awesome on COVID in in making that executive order declaring an emergency. He gave CDPHE the authority to do virtually anything they wanted to do, and he arms a toddler with a handgun, and when that handgun goes off and inhibits people's freedoms by masking up the state at the punitive sanction of a potential misdemeanor in jail, he then goes, well, that wasn't – I didn't do that. I didn't do that. It was the toddler that did that. It was CDPHE that did that. There isn't really too much positive that he can run on. It's not, He's not going to be able to say, are you better off today than you were when I got sworn in? Do you have more freedoms today than you have when I got sworn in? He's not going to be able to run on any of that stuff. So instead, he hijacks the Tabor refunds as if to say, you see, I know I wanted to take these away with Proposition CC, but I know you won't remember that. So I'm going to repackage them and call them Jared Polis loves you. And we're going to send you a check with your ballots. Is that going to work? No, Pontius Polis. Oh, we're not boom. buying it. <laughs> I, I don't think Go so ahead, either. Sir. No, no. Listen, I don't think so either. Listen, we had to we had to say goodbye to Christy Burton Brown sort of unceremoniously oh. because she had to pop off to do another uh, interview. I think on, on another show, but we were great to have her on. It was great. And Priscilla, thank you for joining us on this. I'll let you get back to candle making. I don't know what sense you have. Are they politically uh, politically themed sense? Well, I'm going to cleanse Colorado with my um, orange scent today. It's just, a, and does it smell like an game. orange, or is it like orange it's crush has, orange? It's like blood orange. It's really amazing. Uh huh. Pontius Pilate started with Peter Boyles. He's the guy who said it. He's the guy who I've called out on this podcast for being an anti-Semite, and it's not just me. I had Judith Berg on. She knew Peter Boyles back in the day. She knew Peter Boyles pretty darn well because she was married to Alan Berg. And did you hear what she said that Peter Boyles called her? I won't forget it. Boyles, why don't you address it? If it's wrong, why don't you say something? Huh? And did we mishear you when you kept calling Pontius Polis? And see the people who listen to you. Now, they use the term Pontius Polis. You can cascade talk radio boils, but you started this kind of crap. Why don't you repudiate your affection for Trump? Why don't you repudiate Pontius Polis? It's disgusting. And I believe Judith Berg when she said the following. Here's the thing that I want to know about Alan Berg. Because... I've tried to identify who his friends were at the time he died. Who would you say were his top friends? Well, uh, I don't know. And I hope, I just hope that Alan really didn't allow a friendship with Peter Boyles because Peter claimed they were friends. I don't know. You would know. What, what do you know about that? I don't know anything. I never witnessed those two interact. Uh, maybe I heard them on the radio occasionally, but at the time of Alan's death, they were competing against each other. And I have yes. been in a and situation. Alan, and Go ahead. Peter Boyle, Peter Boyle told me, Alan left you money. Why don't you give the money to his mother? 
I hated Peter. I hate him. I hated him then. I hate him now. I hated him forever. Why don't you give money to Ruth Berg? Then he called me a kike. Peter Boyle called me a kike. For what reason? Probably because he thought I... Well, because he was telling me to give money to Alan's mother. I mean, Peter has always been in an inordinate uh, conversation, I think. I mean, I know he has a a population that thinks he's great. But that's a startling accusation to say that he used the K-word. Are are you sure? When did this happen? This happened after Alan died and... and, um, Oh, it was, I think it was after something about he left me money and and Peter thought I should give it to to Ruth Berg. I mean, Peter's so outrageous. Are you surprised? Peter Boyles is the paid advertiser for a lot of Denver businesses and law firms. He advertises for Dan Kaplis. Dan Kaplis, who is so elated over this Roe v. Wade overturning that he said would bring the country together. That's just ridiculous. And it's outrageous to me that a smart guy like Dan Kaplis would continue to back Donald Trump. I understand he delivered those pro-life judges who overturned Roe v. Wade. But does that mean he can commit a seditious conspiracy against America? Apparently so. No analysis of Cassidy Hutchinson really And then the one time that I heard Dan Kaplis talk about her, it was so ridiculous that you have to hear it. My God, I remember the days I'd come in not knowing necessarily what we were going to talk about, and he'd say something like this, and I could go for hours just explaining how wrong it is to suggest that Donald Trump was wrongly stopped from going to the Capitol where he would have brought peace to the valley. On January 6th, are you kidding me? If he wanted peace in the valley, why didn't he tweet, let's have peace in the valley? Instead, for 187 minutes, he hoped that the Proud Boys, those white supremacists, had done their job, and they did. They broke down the barriers, and he hoped that the mob would follow them in, and they did, and the Oath Keepers had their equipment and formations, and they were out to get the people who needed to be got. Pence, Pelosi. It was all going to plan in a way, and the president was going to go up there and stop it. He wanted it to happen. Come on, Dan Kaplis. Really? This is ridiculous. Is this guy like a goddamn? I go back to what Peter Boyles was talking about, cults of talk radio. You know, you all three still have a voice and a microphone. You can call out Donald Trump as the existential threat to America that he is. Other conservatives have done so. But you guys keep championing this bullshit. Come on, Dan, really? This is your analysis? You're suggesting that Donald Trump, like some religious figure, would have gone to the Capitol, spread his arms, and peace in the valley? I thought you were smarter than that. This business of Cassidy Hutchinson, you may have heard her name by now, or you may have just heard her described as, you know, the the aide, you know, who is testifying on the Hill today. 
And so I want to get into her testimony a little bit, I'm sure, and probably in the news at the top, you, you probably heard about her testimony. And please keep in mind, so far, much of this is hearsay, is secondhand stuff, maybe true, but it's hard to test, particularly because there's no cross-examination. So that's a starting point with her and every other witness. They may be telling the truth, but how do you know without cross-examination? And there's no cross-examination on this committee because Nancy Pelosi refused to allow the Republicans to have everyone they wanted. So without cross-examination, you can just never really be sure. But in any case, yeah, uh, you've probably heard the headline stuff by now, the accounts uh, allegedly of the president telling Secret Service to take him to the Capitol after the speech. And then Secret Service refusing and the president trying to grab the wheel and then grabbing for a Secret Service agent, allegedly, when uh, they refused to take him to the Capitol. And I do want to get into that conversation a little bit because here's what I don't understand. He's the president of the United States. He's the commander in chief of the armed forces. And I'd love to get your take on whether he should have gone to the Capitol or not. I remember that very day, and I can't remember whether I tweeted or not. I, I was tweeting real time on this. I was so outraged about what I saw happening at the Capitol. But, uh, but I know I was telling people, and then later on air, that I thought the president really missed a, a tremendous opportunity for leadership when he failed to go to the Capitol and to stop what was happening. So now we're learning today, at least according to a secondhand account from this one Mark Meadows staffer, that... The president wanted to go to the Capitol and was, what word would you use, Ryan? I don't want to use the word kidnapped because that's too loaded a word. Restrained. Restrained? Um, I, I certainly am not going to use abducted or kidnapped. I don't think those exactly fit. But the president of the United States was not allowed to go to the Capitol? According to this testimony, which is another reason why I really wish there was cross-examination. And again, because it's hearsay, you'd need to cross-examine both this witness and the individual she was relying on to relay the story. And if that wasn't a source witness, the source witness, because it seems so preposterous to me that the Secret Service, who I have tremendous respect for her from everything I know about him, that the Secret Service would refuse a direct order from the commander-in-chief I mean, as a son of a 30-year cop and just all the people I've known in military and law enforcement, chain of command is a pretty big deal. <laughs> you know, So it's just hard to picture a Secret Service refusing that direct order. I, I could see a, hey, Mr. President, not smart, you know, that kind of conversation, but a, refusing a direct order. And I want to throw this out there as well. Is there any real chance that this riot at the Capitol happens if the president is there. I, I do not see this crowd, even the obvious criminal rogue element of this crowd, which does not represent Trump supporters, doesn't represent Republicans, doesn't represent Trump, just represents themselves and their criminality. Not talking about the people who went to the rally. I'm talking about the people who committed crimes. It's hard to picture even them defying the president of the United States if he's at the Capitol and saying, don't do this. So, I mean, this is just, well, if this testimony is accurate, did whoever prevented the president from going to the Capitol actually indirectly allow all of this to happen? 
Listen to that crap blaming Nancy Pelosi. What, to put Jim Jordan on? The guy's a witness. Do better legal analysis than that. You have to. Anyway, after a break, we'll come back with Bob Levy, who's got brilliant political science analysis. He's a Republican through and through, from Abe Lincoln on down. This guy represents the best of the Republican Party, and he doesn't like Donald Trump. That's my kind of Republican. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend. I always appreciate a great rating, five stars. Apple Podcasts, you got to scroll around to do it, but it's worth it, and I sure will appreciate it. Our audience is growing every week, and it's because of people like you. Enjoy Bob Levy. Enjoy the troubadour with somebody who knows it all. And here you go. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hello. Professor Levy. Yes, it's me. I'm here, ready to go. We are podcasting. Thanks a lot for doing this. Glad to do it. Have you done a lot of podcasts? This is my first one. This is a brand new experience. Wow. I love when people say that. You were one of the best professors I ever had. You introduced me to a lot of things. So to get the opportunity to do a podcast, it's it's like writing history. This is how we feel at this moment about a lot of things. And uh, I have to say that I refreshed myself on your writing. I renewed my subscription to the Gazette. Just to read you, I wish they published you a little more frequently, but people can go to your website at Colorado College, and we'll get to that. But I know you are a great newspaper man, and you taught me how to write, so we cannot bury the lead, which is, yes, you were my professor at Colorado College, but you were the professor for House January 6th Committee Vice Chair Representative Liz Cheney, a proud graduate of Colorado College. And isn't that true? You were her star professor, too. Uh, She took American government courses from me at Colorado College. She also studied under uh, Tom Cronin, uh, who's another professor of political science at uh, Colorado College. Uh, She was a poli-sci major and uh, did a senior thesis 
Uh, the senior thesis was on presidential war powers. Wow, that's quite a subject. I remember studying up on that in the Rockies press box when we decided to bomb Libya not that long ago. Remember that? And it was a big War Powers Act, and I thought, I need to study up on that. But back to Liz Cheney, have you stayed in touch since she graduated? Uh, she stayed in touch with the college, and uh, through that, I've been in touch with her. Uh, she comes back periodically to uh, teach classes uh, the same way that she taught in uh, my, uh, or the uh, uh, same way that her father, who preceded her as a congressman from Wyoming, as well as vice president of the United States, um, he, she arranged for him to come and teach in my classes, and now she comes and teaches in the current professor's classes at Colorado College. Aren't we forgetting the most important Cheney, Lynn Cheney, uh, Liz's mom, another proud CC grad, right? Yes. Uh, Lynn Cheney graduated in 1963 and uh, became well-known nationally. Uh, serving on the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, she's also a scholar. She published a uh, well-regarded book on President James Madison. So, uh, yes, Lynn Cheney started the uh, Cheney Parade at Colorado College, followed by uh, uh, Liz and also uh, Liz's sister, Mary. So we have three uh, Cheney women as graduates of Colorado College. And we're going to get around to it, but if this country is capable of surviving, and might be because Colorado College influenced the Cheneys a little bit, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get to the main part of our story, which is you, Professor. You are a fascinating guy, and I get jealous when I read your columns a lot of them you write with Tom Cronin, but you are a superb writer, and I try to do it for the Colorado Sun as best I can, but you are magnificent. Does that trace back to you being a journalist? Yes. Uh, I was undecided between a journalism career or a teaching career, so I compromised and worked my way through graduate school, getting a PhD in political science by working as a reporter for the Hearst paper in Baltimore, Maryland, the Baltimore News Post. And of course, uh, as you know, the Hearst organization was famous for a fast, exciting writing style. Uh, I learned early on to try to learn how to write to really entertain the people who were doing the reading. So I, I have to give the old Baltimore News Post a lot of credit for the way I write and the way the public receives it. It is tremendous. But what about your grade school? Where did you grow up? Tell us about your family. Uh, born in St. Louis, uh, lived there until age five, uh, moved to Baltimore, Maryland, lived in a northern suburb called Towson, uh, went to a private prep school called St. Paul's School for Boys in Baltimore, don't confuse that with a more famous St. Paul's up in New Hampshire. Um, 
but uh, I got uh, preparatory school training, uh, then went to Williams College, a small liberal arts college in uh, Massachusetts. And there's kind of a key there. I've been in teaching at small liberal arts colleges, working for supporting the small liberal arts college idea ever since. It's easy for me because I'm a Colorado kid, fourth generation, barely ever left Colorado. Lived in Colorado Springs, Boulder, that sort of thing. But I bet, I just feel like Maryland was uh, uh, an important part of your upbringing. Just that location, Baltimore, the time period. Am I right? Did your geography being in Maryland impact your life? Very definitely. Uh, The newspaper I worked for employed me in the summertime, full time, and they would send me to the city hall to replace the city hall reporter when he went on vacation. Then it was out to the uh, county courthouse and the suburbs when the courthouse reporter went on vacation, and so on through the state courts. I simply got a picture. How old were you then? Uh, This is from age 22 to uh, age uh, 28. I worked six years as a a full-time in the summertime, uh, part-time on the weekends uh, through the rest of the year. Uh, So what what, what years years would this have been? uh, I started in uh, 1957. Uh, I actually got in a week of work and then had to go back up to Williamstown to graduate. Uh, this this started in uh, 1957 and ended in 1963. And uh, I developed the nickname of Baltimore Bob because of my great interest in government in Baltimore and what's about Baltimore. Uh, and uh, you're exactly right. When I came to Colorado College in 1968, I brought all that Baltimore experience with me and converted it into learning all and doing everything I could to write intelligently and knowingly about government in Colorado. And you uh, you became an expert on Colorado Springs, I know, because I took your urban planning class and it was sensational, but back to the late 50s and early 60s. What a time period. What a location, because Baltimore and Maryland, right on that Mason-Dixon line, did that factor into the drama of being in the newspaper world then? It dominated uh, my youth. I covered the uh, civil rights movement in Maryland. And you're right, uh, Now, I would never compare Maryland to Mississippi or Alabama or the Deep South, but Maryland uh, was a former slave state. Uh, The only reason it didn't secede from the Union was Lincoln sent troops to uh, occupy Baltimore. Um, It was uh, racially segregated. Uh, But it was making progress by the time I got there. There were African-American bus drivers. There were African-American cab drivers. Uh, African-American nurses were working in 
white hospitals. But uh, it was still segregated. Uh, one of my first stories was uh, uh, bricks thrown through the window of a elementary school in rural Maryland that uh, that integrated. I worked another story, which was a near riot in Cambridge, Maryland. Black protesters were coming down the street. Uh, Tough-looking guys, uh, not armed, but uh, with plenty of muscle waiting for them. White guys. Uh, I know that story because you wrote the best column about it. Gosh, the drama built up, and I felt like I was there. Keep going. I I never had even heard of Cambridge, Maryland, but I looked it up. It's on the Chesapeake. You know, I'm a Colorado guy. Guy who mm-hmm. knows from Cambridge, but the way I pictured it, it's kind of right on that north south divide, and a bunch of white guys, sort of like we see nowadays, will get there waiting in the town center and the black mm-hmm. march coming at them. And you're with the white guys wondering, it sounds like you were thinking, Am I gonna get hurt here? Uh, very definitely, and I can tell you it was one of the big moments of my life. When the Maryland National Guard arrived, when there was just one block left uh, between the two groups, uh, and they they pulled up in jeeps and trucks, and I mean they were armed with rifles, no bayonets. They were armed with rifles, and they put one on every street corner in downtown Cambridge, Maryland, and uh, ended it just like that. But. Uh, uh, then uh, I earned a fellowship as a young professor. It's called a congressional fellowship to work on Capitol Hill for a year. Uh, left the classroom and went down and uh, got an internship in the Senate with uh, Tom Kekel of California. Uh, what, year, suddenly, what year was this? Well, now we're talking 1963-1964 academic year. And Tom Kekel is the minority leader in the Senate. And all of a sudden, the 1964 Civil Rights Act comes along, and he's the uh, uh, Senate leader for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Then the legislative assistant in and, the and, office. And he's a Republican, right? He's a Republican, Right, yes. and you are a Republican. I should have put that in the lead. I'll put it in the show notes because I've always had, well, I did until recent times, think well of Republicans because of guys like you. But you are uh, a Republican, yeah, Republican reporter in Baltimore. That was back in the day, and they had Republican senators from California Keep going because Republicans were at the forefront. God bless them of that 1964 Civil Rights Act. Am I right? Uh, well, they were key to it. The uh, Southern segregationists were all Democrats. Right. And uh, one reason it was so difficult to get the Civil Rights Act through is that the Southern Democrats were filibustering it. So the only way the liberal Democrats could get a Civil Rights Act was to get the Republicans to come along. Well, the guy in charge of getting the Republicans to come along was Tom Kiko. Well, the uh, uh, legislative assistant in the office had to 
go away for six months, I suddenly found myself as an intern, the legislative assistant to the Senate leader for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You talk about about stumbling into an opportunity for an academic. I got to go to all the strategy sessions. I got to meet all of the senators who were favoring the Civil Rights Act. Hubert Humphrey was the Democratic leader in the Senate, so I saw lots of him. Uh, It was was just a uh, uh, marvelous experience. So, uh, yes, I was very fortunate that my newspaper career and my young academic career corresponded with the civil rights movement and put me right in the middle of it. See, that's why podcasting is great, because it's long form and there's so many things to talk about right there, not the least of which is Hubert Humphrey, who I, I can tie to my Colorado college experience. All right, you ready? Yes. When I got there, my first girlfriend, really in my life, her name was Nancy O'Malley from St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, she was a big Hubert Humphrey fan. How could you not be? She was from Minnesota, and I was a Democrat, and I liked Frank Church, I think, back then in the day, and so we disagreed about that, and uh, we did break up. It wasn't all about that, but uh, that's how old I am, but I never met Hubert Humphrey. And the thing about you, Professor Levy, this Civil Rights Act of 64, I think it may be at the heart of what's going on in the Supreme Court right now and in America. It may be the most important little piece of legislation ever. Uh, well, that's, that's big. You're a poli You can grade me down for that. But it was a big deal. And it wasn't just that you were working for a senator who believed in that. You're like Forrest Gump. You're in the middle of it, but it's what you believed in. Am I right? You thought it was the right thing to do. You were that kind of a Republican as opposed to Barry Goldwater type of Republican. Yes, that's true. Um, As a newspaper man in Baltimore, they used to call it the white curtain. Uh, African-Americans couldn't get in the newspaper uh, when they did positive things, the imagine the pages of your daily newspaper being segregated, only white people being covered, uh, winning in a, an advancement or getting elected to office. And uh, I really tried to slip in little stories about uh, black people. A group of black teenagers were holding a block dance and uh, the black area of Baltimore. And uh, I heard about it, went to one, and uh, wrote a story about it, not mentioning the uh, race, and uh, got it into the paper. Uh, that sounds like a very little thing. Oh, he got a story about uh, black teenagers having a dance party in the summertime in an open block. But that was a big achievement back in those days. So, who, who was standing uh, in the way? Was it individual editors? Was it a culture? Who was it, demanding that? It was a a culture. When I went to work for the News Post, I had city editors and a city desk, and they were what I would call bitter segregationists. 
they made it a point never to say anything complimentary about uh, minorities. Uh, that was the beginning and the end of it. And and I, I really tried to uh, get these stories in the paper. It came to an open confrontation. This is kind of a tough story, but a, a guy ran his car up on the curb, hit three little black girls jumping rope. Uh, one of them was killed. Uh, one of them escaped uninjured. The other one was badly injured. And I phoned that story in, and the city editor said, as ever, is this white or black? I said, it's black, and but then I couldn't help myself. I said, but it's a really good story, and you ought to put that in the newspaper. And he did. So uh, there's a, another little story. Uh, here, let me give a lecture for just one minute. Sure. You know, we think of the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King and big events like uh, the demonstrations in uh, Montgomery, Alabama with the bus boycott and later on Birmingham, uh, Alabama. But what people don't realize is that everywhere across the country, there were people trying to do what I was trying to do just in a little way in that particular place bring black people into the greater society. And uh, so uh, that was a very significant thing. Now, people forget about all the small things that people did that were helped to move along the civil rights movement. Right. Movements by guys like you telling that editor, yeah, you, you have to run this story. You took a chance and you're a white guy. Why did you have those values? Uh, I have them because of the elementary school system in Baltimore. I remember being taught to believe in racial integration in the third and fourth grade in the elementary schools uh, back in Baltimore, Maryland. I remember when I started college, I heard about that study, the authoritarian personality, and I realized what I should have perceived well ahead of it, but here it was in a in an academic setting, that if you are anti-black, you're going to be anti-Jewish, and vice versa, it's hating the other, etc. Baltimore has a lot of Jewish residents. I don't know what it was like in the 50s and 60s, but was there discrimination against Jews back in the day, or were Jews better accepted? Uh, unlike black people, uh Maryland had had laws like most of the South, uh, many of which were still in effect uh, in uh, the uh, mid-1960s, early 1960s, uh, when I was working as a newspaper man. Uh, there were no such laws affecting Jewish people. Uh, the discrimination was more personal uh, at that time than uh, uh it, it was not what we call legal or juris uh, segregation. But there was discrimination uh, socially. Does Baltimore consider itself part of the North or the South or a hybrid? Oh, uh, Maryland very definitely considers itself a, a hybrid. The uh, existence of the Mason-Dixon line 
And the fact that it was the line between slavery and freedom uh, was uh, considered very important in the state's history. And uh, it, uh, a political scientist actually wrote a book once on the idea that Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland, and Delaware, the states that had slavery but did not secede for the Union, uh, might be used as models for bringing racial integration to the United States. So uh, Maryland was ahead of the rest of the South, but was still in many cases segregated. It's quite a state. It's got uh, an interesting political history. Wasn't John Wilkes Booth associated with Maryland? Didn't he get caught up there? And is that a part of Maryland history that you want forgotten? Uh, it is not. Uh, I've, uh, I don't want to disagree with you on your own podcast, but... Uh, no, feel you, free. You're my educator. Yeah. I, well, yes. Uh, no, uh, uh, Maryland uh, had a great deal to do with the Civil War, uh, uh, but uh, not with John Wilkes Booth. Uh, and uh, wasn't there a swamp in Maryland when they tried to chase him afterwards where a lot oh, of people oh, perished, oh, etc.? Oh, oh, you could be very uh, correct about that. I was thinking of the evolution of the plot. So far as I know, it only happened in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. itself. All right, let's get more contemporary, because I remember a guy named Sparrow Agnew. Didn't he come from Maryland, and wasn't he kind of an incredible bad guy? Uh, you you keep asking questions that require a 20-minute lecture. That, that, I, I want to know about Agnew. Did, did you ever listen to Rachel Maddow's podcast, Bagman, recreating the story of Sparrow Agnew and all he did wrong? I bring him up because I expect you know a lot about him. I want to get it on record, if you would. Uh, okay. Um, I was from Towson, Maryland, as was Sparrow Agnew. Uh my home was in Baltimore County, Maryland, and Spiro Agnew was the Baltimore County executive. I was a Republican, and so was Spiro Agnew. So when he ran to be governor of Maryland, he asked me to write speeches for him. Now, here's the part that people have trouble believing. At the time I went to work for Agnew, he was a very liberal Republican and uh, was considered very, very liberal on race issues. Uh, as Baltimore County Executive, he integrated all the public housing in Baltimore County, which, of course, gave him a reputation as a racial integrationist. So I was very happy to write position papers for him. And, of course, in the course of working with a campaign, you get to interact with the candidate uh, personally from time to time. So I knew Agnew and worked with him, wrote him two speeches, uh, one on the need for reform of the electoral process and uh, the other on the need for reforming uh, public housing in uh, Maryland. And he went on. He was elected governor of Maryland and uh, was off to a fine liberal start. And then 
this is where the story gets interesting, when there was a uh, black demonstration in Baltimore, Spiro Agnew, who had gotten the black vote, criticized black leaders uh, for not trying to tamp down the violent parts of the demonstration, which at the time to me seemed very reasonable. Well, Richard Nixon noticed that and decided to uh, ask Agnew to be his vice president because he, Nixon kind of threw away his liberal image and simply wanted to benefit from the image of uh, Agnew, uh, the man who said, stand up, be law-abiding. Uh, you have the right to demonstrate for your rights, but you don't have the right to break the law in a violent fashion. Now, and, now uh, I, I just want to clarify, because you said uh, there that you thought it was reasonable, and I wasn't clear whether you thought Agnew's criticism was reasonable or what the black demonstrators had done well, was reasonable. No, uh, I, uh, uh, what... Uh, 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 Agnew said was reasonable. Right, because uh, there was some violence and it was uh, inappropriate in your judgment. Right. Well, if you believe in Martin Luther King, I do. I do. As I do, you don't become violent. Now you're getting you into a time I remember. And yeah, between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, I was definitely for MLK and nonviolence was the way. Keep going. Uh, well, uh, uh, Martin Luther King believed in nonviolence. Right. You could break the law, but you didn't break the law by setting your block on fire or stealing all the food out of the local grocery store. You broke the law by being arrested and going to jail and uh, making your argument that uh, segregation was uh, unfair and un-American. So, uh, so, so, Dick so Nixon, Nixon liked that Agnew stepped up for law and order. That attracted he, him? He stepped up for law and order. Uh, just at the moment, Nixon was looking for a uh, vice presidential candidate. And uh, uh, that's uh, suddenly found himself elected vice president of the United States, but not with a liberal image, with a... Uh, a uh, very uh, conservative law and order, uh, do what you're told image. Uh, uh, the uh, It was like two different people. Uh, to take the story to its conclusion, when it turned out that Agnew had taken bribes, uh, which it, they showed clearly that he had done as governor of Maryland, and he had to resign the vice presidency, uh, I was interviewed uh, by the local paper here in Colorado Springs, and the headline was, I thought he was Mr. Clean. Uh, here, uh, Agnew had, had this reputation of being liberal, of being honest, being clean, and turned out in the end that exactly the opposite had become the case. Right. And whatever liberal tendencies he had, when I became aware of him, he seemed like sort of an ass talking about the moral majority and mm -hmm. castigating the media, the, the authoritarian crap that I can't stand right now. But you knew the man. And uh, 
a lot of people change before our eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. If you listen to that podcast, I really recommend it. It's called Bagman, and uh, a lot of the prosecutors uh, were young guys back in the day, and they tell the story. It's just very amazing what you can do with podcasts, but I'm surprised you weren't there at the inaugural, or were you, on the stage with Agnew writing this speech? Because up till now, I've been stumbling into gold mines with you. I mean, did, did you get to dance at the inaugurals and stay close? No, no. Um, I was strictly a, at the campaign headquarters uh, type of person. Uh, uh, I certainly, in my mind, celebrated along with Agnew. And it, it's just so ironic because I was celebrating with the Agnew who was on the forefront of uh, racial change in the country, who mm -hmm. was on the forefront. I mean, he was a classic, what we would call liberal or uh, liberal Republican at the time. Right. That's and, what uh, I thought. That's uh, what I, I thought Donald Trump was when I voted for him in 2016. What a schmuck yeah. I was. But and, uh, uh, <laughs> go ahead. I have uh, great difficulty convincing people that this uh, liberal, uh, pro-integrated housing uh, Agnew uh, actually existed. Uh, okay, but, I'm, uh, I'm going to take one more drill into Maryland soil. Well, one one go last ahead. point. Yeah, on please. Agnew. Yeah, you did tell me twenty minutes, and it's only been seventeen. Keep going. Uh, Agnew asked me to become his administrative assistant I as it. Baltimore County Executive. And how, why didn't you say close yes? He, he and I were. Huh. And I had, just as I had had to decide, well, am I going to be a newspaper reporter or a college professor? I had to decide, am I going to be a uh, government uh, uh, government assistant? put myself in a position where by learning the trade, I might be able to move up to an elected office in Baltimore County. Uh, I opted to stay in the academic world, but that was a real fork in the road. And wow. uh, I've often wondered what would have happened to me if I had gone to work for Agnew and become a paid part of his organization. You could have saved America. You could have said, no, <laughs> sir, you're not going to take those cash bribes. We're going to stop that. We're going to take charge of Nixon, not let him do the bad things. But you weren't there, so Watergate happened. And another Marylander, is that what you call you guys, Marylanders? We're Marylanders. What That's about right. the Hogan family? I bet you know them, too. I uh, I don't. Oh uh, no! I, I broke I broke with uh, Maryland uh, completely when I moved to Colorado in uh, 1968. Well, Larry Hogan's so. father, Larry Hogan, current governor, his father was a Republican who famously was among the first to break from Nixon during Watergate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I've watched. Uh, uh, you're talking about Larry yes, Hogan, yeah. the governor of Maryland. Yes. No, uh, he is the uh, uh, very much in the old Agnew mold, mm -hmm. the uh, forward thinking, uh, solve the problem uh, kind of liberal Republican. Uh, 
there's another angle to this. I asked Agnew, I said, I'm going to Washington. Uh, know anybody down there who I should intern with? He said, I like Tom Kekel of California. That's how I got with Kekel and the whole thing with the Civil Rights Act. How do you spell Agnew. how do you spell Kekel? K-U-C-H-E-L. K-U-C-H-E-L. Yeah, Thomas uh, Kekel. Uh, he was uh, California's uh, uh, senator from the mid-50s to the late 60s. Never heard so of he him. Was, he was there for the whole uh, civil rights thing. Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, etc., all right, wasn't there another famous Californian there? I'm just going to take a shot now since you know everybody. Earl Warren, and did you run into Supreme Court members in your travels in Washington? Well, now, Earl Warren, of course, is, although I never met Earl Warren, uh, uh, one of my great heroes, uh, I always keep in mind that the civil rights movement began when the Warren-led Supreme Court integrated public schools in 1954. The whole thing, if that had not happened, integration would have stayed, uh, segregation, which was legal until that decision, separate but equal was the standard, uh, would have remained in effect. So the uh, uh, I credit Earl Warren with beginning the whole civil rights movement. No, Right, and I credit, I credit Clarence Thomas for taking it back. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, no, uh, the connection there is Tom Kiko was Earl Warren's protege in California. I guess. When Earl Warren, when Earl Warren was governor of California, uh, he promoted uh, uh, Kiko, uh, ran Kiko for... Uh, 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 state attorney general, so the voters knew him. And the real connection here is when Nixon was elected vice president, Earl Warren appointed Tom Kekel to the Senate. So, that, hadn't been for Earl Warren, Kekel wouldn't have been there for me to get advice from Agnew to intern with him. Oh my God. It's it's a study in the way we're all connected in ways we don't realize. Okay, I'll take another shot with a prominent Republican of the era, Dwight Eisenhower. Did you get to know him too? I uh, did. uh, Well, I'm a great admirer of Eisenhower. His brother was the president of Johns Hopkins University, where I got my PhD. and uh, so, uh, well, maybe uh, Eisenhower is from Denver. We got that. Oh, yes. No, uh, interesting connection to Eisenhower for me. He spoke at uh, my graduation when I got my master's degree from uh, Johns Hopkins University. Nice. So, yes, I was on the same podium with Dwight D. Eisenhower when. He gave the speech at uh, my graduate school graduation. Uh, He brought with him another great guest speaker who I was able to uh, 
uh, be on the podium with, and that was Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister of England at that time. So, wow, and we're recording this on the day that Boris Johnson steps down. I mean, it's unbelievable the life you've led, and I'm I'm not hitting many dry holes, but I would just ask you, who who are the most admirable politicians you've ever encountered? And I know you have respect for politicians. You say politics, we need people to do this and to do it well. I've always loved that about you, and you write about it so eloquently, but... Who stands out? Who did you say, if more people were like him, what about this Kiko guy? Was he all that? Uh, well, you sensed it properly. Of, of all the people I've uh, encountered, uh, known, studied, uh, I, I would have to say Tom Kiko was the most honorable, uh, the one who tried the hardest to do the right thing uh, by America. Uh, he was an early opponent of arch conservatism in the Republican Party. In fact, uh, he gave a uh, very interesting speech on the floor of the Senate entitled The Fear Mongers, in which he pointed out the way in which the right wing in the Republican Party at that time was trying to use fear to scare people into doing uh, harsh and unpleasant things uh, to other people. So the answer to your question is uh, Tom Kiko. Um, the other person I greatly admired was a Democrat, and that's Hubert Humphrey. Uh, his leadership for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, I have to say, was uh, truly remarkable. And uh, he really wanted that law passed he supported civil rights through his entire career, and he really went all out for it. I admired him, and I admired him. I admired Tom Kekel for helping him in every way that he possibly could. Okay, now here's a tough question. You probably threw these at me when I was your student, but 1968, Humphrey versus Nixon and Agnew. Who did you vote for? I voted for Nixon. Because, and it's another story, I am inherited lifelong Republican. Uh, I'll Explain try that, please. So you're I've, saying you were obligated to vote for Nixon? Uh, I was obligated to vote Republican. Okay, explain that. My, my great-great-grandfather, Archibald Williams, was elected to the Illinois legislature in the 1830s. Wait a second. And is that the guy who was Lincoln's friend? Yes. And he became a close friend of Lincoln's. Uh, he was older and was regarded as Lincoln's mentor when Lincoln was a young backwoods lawyer in the, in the Illinois legislature. Uh, both of them were regarded as uh, not very attractive, rough, hewn, uh, Kentucky boys uh, turned Illinois uh, lawyers, and uh, he supported uh, Lincoln uh, all the way through his career, uh, campaigned for him as president. Once Lincoln was president, now the family legend is that Lincoln offered him 
a position on the Supreme Court and he turned it down because he was too old and too sick. I've never been able to prove that. What I do know is Lincoln appointed him the first uh, United States judge for the newly admitted state of Kansas. Anyway, that's a long way of saying uh, I, I've written about the meeting in Illinois when literally Abraham Lincoln and my great-great-grandfather formed the Republican of Illinois party of Illinois out of the old Whig party and the new anti-slavery party. So with a background like that, uh, I like to say, you know, no matter what happens, the Chevy boys don't drive Fords. And when you have a background, political background like I have, you're a Republican. That's it. Oh, boy, I bet you've been tested and recently, but let's let's move on to a fork in the road for me, because I love my experience at Colorado College, and I saw you and my advisor, Dave Finley, and I was studying Soviet-American relations, and people said, well, what's the utility of that? Everything old is new again, right? And Fred Sonderman was there, and I mentioned you you were just fantastic. I love CC, and I thought, these guys are bright. They're they just seem to have a great life. Maybe I could get a PhD, then I could coach basketball and teach, I don't know, con law to undergraduates. I thought that would be a good life. Is it? It's an excellent life. That's all I can say. Um, particularly at the uh, liberal arts level. Keep in mind where you went to school, everyone who came there they didn't come there to write the great book. They didn't come there to be the top researcher. Uh, they didn't come there to get $100,000 grants, what we call grantsmanship. They came there to teach. And uh, there's really, it's hard to find, if you're tending that way, to do anything that's more rewarding than meet with 25 young people teach them things they need to know, and then get to react to the questions they ask and the responses they have uh, to what you said. So, uh, uh, yes, it's a wonderful life. It's also a very secure life. Uh, you know all about uh, tenure uh, for professors, but most professors do not abuse tenure. Uh, they use it to teach their students and teach them well. But don't you think you wandered into a special group? And I went on your uh, website. What is it called? Bob Levy, and you spell it L-O-E-V-Y. Tell us yes. about that. Yeah, your name, where does that come from? What does it mean? Uh, the name comes from uh, uh, an ancestor who was a chemist at the University of Prague. And he got himself on the wrong side of the 1848 revolution and became part of what American historians call the 1848ers, a large number of people from uh, the old Austro-Hungarian uh, uh, empire who had to leave and leave in a hurry. Uh, he got on a boat for the United States, uh, met my great-grandmother on the boat. They landed at New Orleans, then came up the Mississippi River 
to St. Louis, uh, where he opened a, a drugstore. So that's where the last name comes from. Wait, there's another clue. Because, you know, in my religion, there are the Kohans, the priests, the Levites. They got some special status. And then there's the regular Israels, the regular folk like me. Are you a Levite? Now that you talk about a mercantile business, is it is Levy the same as Levy? Um, I'm having difficulty answering that question because we have tried to clearly establish uh, where he was in terms of religion. Uh, I think there's a very good chance, and there was a historian, Dennis Showalter at Colorado College. I loved him. He was great. I had him too. He tells me that I'm a member of a group of people who years ago in the area that's now uh, the Czech Republic, uh, were originally Jewish, but uh, converted uh, to Christianity. Uh, he argued they were given the choice that Christianity are off with your head, and they chose Christianity. Uh, but they kept the uh, the same name and and a lot of traditions. That's what you call so, keeping your head in a tough situation. And and I don't blame yes. them. And I'm just telling you that so many Jewish people started drugstores, right? And I remember mm -hmm. Professor Showalter explained that they weren't allowed to be lawyers or doctors. So a lot of them became peddlers in one way or another. So maybe that was your ancestry. I've always wondered about that. No, that, it's not maybe. That was. He had hoped to be a chemistry professor, to uh, to have a lab, but uh, that that was not allowed. They would not recognize his degrees from the University of Prague. Well, there you go. You're a member of my tribe. So uh, who knew? Uh, who knew? You're right. So he opened a uh, drugstore uh, instead, and it wasn't a big success, but it supported the family. Uh, his uh, son, my grandfather, uh, became a leading St. Louis lawyer, and uh, well, there's a, there's your fourth clue, yes. And you know how you could have gotten rich because my family, one of my uncles, had Edgewater Drug on the outskirts of Denver, and my dad says as a kid they would get the baseball cards, and they didn't even come in boxes. You could look at them and take the good ones. And mm -hmm. my God, if you would have done that at uh, your grandpa's St. Louis store, anyway, but you didn't, but you're, it's just as well you hit the lottery back to Colorado College, and I read your materials. Where is it all stored? If you look up Bob Levy, you have all your writing and current stuff, but you wrote about the CC Political Science Department, and you labeled... Uh, the late 70s as the golden era. And I thought, gosh, that's when I was there. How wonderful. Yes. Well, um, I think it was just a case. Uh, uh, Glenn Brooks started this. Uh, uh, Glenn Brooks, of course, as you know, is the father of our block plan, where the students take only one course at a time. Uh he came, and then they added uh, Finley, and, uh, and then uh, they uh, 
they had added Sonderman uh, prior to uh, Brooks. And then I came and uh, Tim Fuller was there. Uh, you had this case of four to five young political scientists all in their late 30s and early 40s uh, teaching political science together. Uh, we all got along uh, famously. Uh, you look back now and you say, oh, yeah, all white males. Well, uh, that's the way it was at that time. But the result was, in my opinion, you had young white male professors interested in building their careers, but careers as teachers, uh, not as researcher writers at big universities. Right, and you guys really didn't go anywhere, and you're still there. You're Professor Emeritus at CC. How long have you been affiliated with Colorado College now? Um, I, uh, this is my 55th year, so I, I, I came in uh, September of 1968, so I've uh, been there 54 years. Uh, I retired full, fully uh, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, so, uh, I, I was 44 years in the classroom at Colorado College. I remember driving around Colorado Springs and you would teach us at remote locations. And you just, you had an enthusiasm that was infectious. Tell everybody and remind me as a block plan professor, if somebody sends their kid to Colorado College, how much will they have to do, uh, Tell us your favorite class and what's expected of a student. Well, uh, I'm going to cheat on you and have two favorite classes. You just described what was my favorite class, which was called Urban Planning. And uh, as you know, this was a class where we would attend the planning commission meetings of the city. We would attend both the meetings at which they planner, the planning staff presented the various planning issues, zone changes, zone variances. Uh, should this corner be a gas station or should it be an apartment building or should it be private homes? Uh, we'd see them briefed on it. Then we'd go out and look at the sites. That's what I think you're remembering. Right. Uh, I, I love that. Uh, drive around the Springs and uh, you know, Force the student. I mean, what I tried to do was force you to make that decision. What do we do with this piece of property on a busy corner? Should it be a gas station? Well, uh, people who want to make money want to make it a gas station. Wait, the people who already live here, they want it to be homes like their homes. Uh, what do you do? And then, of course, we would attend the public hearings and uh, see what decision the planning commission made. So, that was uh, that was one of my favorite classes. How, how many mention, how many books did you make us read during that block? Uh, say that again. I mean, I I, it's my memory, and you know, it's like you have to walk twelve miles each way in the snow to get to school. But about how many books? Because you have to read a lot if you go to Colorado College. I tell my boys, I would read a book a night. Is that an exaggeration? But at least a book a week in most classes. Oh, uh, uh, at least a book a week, yes. The, the amount of reading 
uh, will vary from professor to professor. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, there, there are many courses where uh, it isn't books you have to read, but it's uh, calculations you have to make or experiments you have to I run, I stayed away from those. I didn't go to those classes. Are you kidding me? No, that I, I've never had to use chemistry or really calculus, that sort of thing. And a lot of people say, well, what can you do with a poli-sci degree? I had Todd Solomon on. He's now the president of the CU system, the whole University of Colorado system. And he has a political science degree from the University of Colorado, which is good. Not as good as his CC poli-sci degree. But I interrupted you while you were talking about urban planning being one of your favorite classes. And you were going to get to another. Um, yes. Uh, the other was a course we developed where the students spend an entire block either working in an election campaign or working in a governmental office. And uh, I'm proud of that course because that was real exposure uh, to political life, to the way uh, politics works. At the same time, I had Colorado College join the Washington Semester Program and uh, the Washington semester program, the kids went to Washington for a semester, lived on the campus of American University, but interned in congressional offices, in, interned at the White House, interned at the Supreme Court. Same thing, uh, real exposure. If I could, uh, I want to go back to a question you asked yes. about what can you do with a poli-sci degree? Yes, please. Well, you other, than my, go, other than go to law school, which is an easy one. Well, you mentioned my little study of the poli-sci department. Uh, in connection with that, and also in connection with the recertification of the department, uh, I sent a letter to all our alumni. What are you doing that connects you to your poli-sci major? I got letters back from people serving on city councils people serving on uh, uh, planning commissions and uh, other types of commissions. I got an amazing number of letters back from people who were judges, who had turned legal careers into uh, successful judicial careers, not judges of the state Supreme Court, uh, judges of the tax court here, and uh, uh, judges of the uh, uh, city courts there. Um, I, I was simply amazed. Uh, then there were all kinds of people who had secondary roles in the uh, offices of uh, politicians. Uh, I just had a former student of mine who uh, retired from a job on Capitol Hill after uh, 25 years. So uh, the answer is we were amazed at the extent to which our graduates connected their lives to their poli-sci majors. And I think that's testimony to your enthusiasm for politics. A lot of people say, ick, politics. Well, your attitude, which is, to me, the smart one is, hey, it's going to affect your life, whether you pay attention or not. You may as well pay attention and do the best for your community. You taught urban planning, and I remember a little about gas stations, this and that, but you admired the park system and you taught me, and now I probably tell my kids, 
little things you told me about, hey, did you see how all the colors are the same over here? Do you see this big park? Well, let me tell you, it was planned, this and that, the kind of thing you taught me. What is, you are an expert on Colorado Springs. You've been there since 1968. Just pass along your affection for your home city and why you feel that way. Um. <laughs> I'm about to write a story on this, giving away my story, but it answers your question. My feeling about Colorado Springs is it's a haven. It is a undiscovered place where so many of the cares and tribulations of living in other cities are not present. Now, you have to keep in mind that I came to Colorado Springs after a very intense six years of being a newspaper reporter and studying carefully life in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, what's different between Baltimore and Colorado Springs? Well, for one thing, the outside downtown Baltimore is what we call the gray area, that circle of older housing around the downtown core that's deteriorated that attracts the problem people in your society. There are big expenses policing it and uh, uh, people who aren't very well educated who are having a tough time in life, they have more fires uh, than other people. That doesn't exist in Colorado Springs. There's no hood in Colorado Springs. There's no ghetto, there's no barrios. Uh, a study from the University of California found that Colorado Springs was the most racially integrated city in the country where housing is concerned. The only other city that was as well integrated racially was Port Lucie, Florida. So this just changes the whole atmosphere of the community. Colorado Springs downtown is surrounded by very stable neighborhoods, which haven't changed since they were built between the years 1880 and uh, let's say 1940. Uh, it's just a very stable community. Then you add in the wonderful view to the West. You add in General Palmer's Parks. It has this these three marvelous parks that its founder, General Palmer, gave it. Uh, it didn't take me long to figure this out about Colorado Springs because in one of my first classes, a student said Colorado Springs is a dropout city. And that's exactly what she meant. But there are problems in Colorado Springs and I've helped to work on those as best I can. But compared to most American cities, it's a haven. You just doesn't have the problems that so many other places do. Gosh, your enthusiasm shines through. And I do love Colorado Springs. And then I went to law school in Boulder. I have a lot of affection there. And here I am a Denverite. And I debate which is better. You're an expert on cities. I'm worried about Denver. I don't know if you've been downtown lately. I've worked there for over four decades and just moved. And I felt like Downtown's been through booms and busts, and I've always proselytized for downtown, but I can't anymore, and I feel bad about it. 
Uh, are you familiar? I don't know how much you get downtown, but you're an expert on cities. I'm worried about my home city of Denver. Should I be? Uh, I think we need to worry about all of our cities. Um, and uh, Colorado Springs has been affected by this as well, but not as badly. Um, coronavirus has depopulated our downtowns, is the major impression I have of right. the present situation. Exactly right. And and then other people take over and it becomes more frightening. The restaurants go away. That's what's happening, especially on the government end of downtown Denver. Go ahead. No, uh, I, I, of course, read about this uh, in the newspaper uh, every day and above all on the Internet. I read the Denver Post on the, on the Internet. No, this is a uh, very difficult situation. I'm very worried about how much downtowns will able, be able to come back uh, after coronavirus totally goes away, if it ever totally goes away. Uh, this is a, a, a very difficult time for our central cities. But I know that in Denver, as in Colorado Springs, and as in Baltimore when I was there, uh, people are working very hard uh, to save it. I, uh, I guess I have to throw in that I was working as a newspaper reporter in Baltimore at the time they conceived of and began building Harbor Place, mm -hmm. that uh, famous uh, urban revival around the downtown Baltimore Harbor. Harbor. We took a bunch of old docks and uh, rundown factories and. If you've ever been to Baltimore, you know it's now Beautiful. a very lively place right on the waterfront. Paddle boats, uh, people sitting out on piers, uh, enjoying lunch in an outdoor cafe. Just a completely different world. I'm, I'm hoping that America's cities can get that kind of redevelopment going again when we uh, get over coronavirus. I'm hoping so, too. But... You're a political scientist, and the thing that weighs heavy on a lot of people is the dissension in America, and even in Colorado. I mean, Western Colorado versus the Front Range, to an extent, Denver versus Colorado Springs. I, I haven't seen political divide like this in my lifetime. What about you? Uh, the polarization is uh, very great. No, I... Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, we we really have a urban-rural uh, divide at the present time, but I think the particularly in Colorado, uh, I think the responsibility is on the urban areas to uh, look at the rural areas, say, why are these people having trouble, and what can we do about it. I, I think one of the worst things that's ever happened is the forcing of wolves on rural Colorado uh, by urban voters on the front range. Uh, uh, that's the kind of thing I think that uh, how did those that of us who live yeah. in urban. I, I've never thought about that. How, how, how did the vote break down? Were rural people against it and urban people voted for it? Oh, uh, it passed very, very heavily in Denver and Boulder. Uh, after all, uh, being nice to animals, and I'm all for this, incidentally, uh, is a 
big part of the liberal uh, drive in, in America mm-hmm. at the present time. And it, it passed very narrowly because I thought the rural areas did a good job of pointing out that, look, these are wolves. Haven't you read your fairy tales lately? Right. Aren't, they're, uh, they're the bad guys. Aren't, aren't sheep <laughs> animals too? Yeah. So, no, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's why you are still a professor emeritus. But I I was thinking more about Lauren Boebert and uh, how little I have in common with the Boebert voter. And, and, and it, it bothers me that she went so big over there. It's mm-hmm. I, I, I'm saddened by it. I wonder, wow, really? That far? I'm worried about America, Professor, uh, and uh, take it out. Are you? I'd like you to tell me to calm down, Craig. It'll all be fine. <laughs> well, I do think it will all be fine. Uh, I do think the there is a wing of the Republican Party, and this has been brewing uh, since I was working on Capitol Hill with Senator Kekul, that just has gotten into uh, extreme ground, which most Americans don't agree with, uh, on abortion, on gun rights, uh, and things of that nature. And they make a lot of noise, and uh, they created a kind of a cottage industry of people who make money out of this business of being far-right and being extreme and stirring up animosity toward the left and the middle. Uh, In many ways, uh, I blame this on the uh, development of cable TV and the Internet, which allows people to only watch or hear one point of view. We were a lot better off back when I was younger when there were three networks and everything got filtered to reach a mass audience. But those days are over. And I think the American people are going to have to learn how to live in a world with cable news and the internet and remain sensible. So I I see a real challenge there. You and I agree on that, Mm -hmm. but I think we can work our way out of it. Well, we need guys like Kiko. Or wasn't it William F. Buckley? I bet you know him, too. I'm just guessing. William F. Buckley, didn't he say, we don't have room for you conspiracy theory nuts, you anti-Semites, you John Birch Society. Get the hell out of here. And Bob Dole said it in 96, that if you want to be a bigot, just march out. That was the Republican Party that we loved, but there's an element of uh, the racism of that white group you were standing with in Cambridge, Maryland, that was going to take on the black people who just wanted their rights. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And and we used to dismiss them. They're a small group. George Wallace had his following. You know, they were, where were they going to go? Well, now we know where they went. And they aligned. And I, I, I just think it comes down to leadership. Where are the brave Republicans who can stand up to this crap. Do you see anybody who attracts you right now? Uh, (laughs) um, I'm tempted to take the easy way out with your question and say someone you and I have discussed many times, uh, Liz Cheney. Yes. (laughs) 
very much, I think the Republican Party has to emulate Liz Cheney. It has to come to its senses about the raw aspects of the Trumpism in the Republican Party. I'll be the first to admit there were some good aspects to the Trump administration. And above all, until coronavirus came along, uh, Trump was succeeding. But I, he very badly went off the rails on January 6th. I'm hoping that uh, Liz Cheney, a Colorado College graduate, as you know, uh, will be able to start a movement in the Republican Party to become sensible and to, when they see a big lie, like the lie that uh, Trump won the 2020 election, uh, will not just cower in the corner, but will stand up the, the way she has. So, well, yeah, uh, th that's perfect. I mean, there's a perfect interview. And even though I disagree with her on a lot of social issues, I think she's shown such courage and standing up for the truth. And I think it's ugly, but I'm glued to this January 6th hearing. How about you? Isn't that American history right there on our screens? I think it's American history in the making. I, I know I'm shocked. I think people are shocked at the extent to which... Uh, President Trump really did not um, yeah, really did not have the personal acting credentials to be president of the United States. I, I think his behavior, wanting to join people who were armed, who were marching on the Capitol, uh, following his instructions, uh, I, I think people are beginning to realize just how far off the rails they went and are very thankful that at least uh, Liz Cheney uh, and that other Republican congressman. Adam uh, Yeah. Uh, and uh, the senator from Utah. Mitt uh, Romney. Mitt Romney, that, uh, that those three have stood up and spoken out. And uh, I hope that it starts a movement in the Republican Party. You know, uh, they've used an interesting word uh, here. Uh, Heidi Ganau and uh, Joe O'Day. Uh, Joe O'Day. Uh, both they're both calling, them, they're calling both. them the sanity Republicans. Right. And uh, I've been fascinated with that word, sanity. That's... That's what the right wing of the Republican Party lacks, uh, the, the positions they take. Uh, I'm, I'm maddest at Trump for withdrawing from international life the way he has. I know Liz Cheney uh, feels that way also. I think talking about going out of NATO, not supporting NATO, uh, uh, that uh, sanity calls for supporting NATO as much as possible. And of course, the developments with Russia and Ukraine make it so clear that that's the correct policy. I agree 100%. And you've been so generous with your time. First of all, I could use tips on how to write great columns. I think I picked up a couple. Then the way you do it with Tom Cronin, 
How do you collaborate? But And then I could ask you, how do you age so gracefully? How old are you now, Professor? I'm 87 years old. Oh, it's I don't I believe it, but what is the secret? How do you maintain such intellectual vigor? You were one of the best interviews ever. Um, Tom Cronin uh, joined me in retirement about two years ago, and he said of both of us, "We didn't retire; we refired." <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the uh, the attitude we're taking. Uh, we're very indebted to uh, Vince Bizdeck, the editor of the uh, Colorado Springs Gazette. He's the one who invited us uh, to write for them. And uh, uh, how do you do it? Uh, in my case, when the opportunity comes along to keep going, uh, by all means, uh, do so. Uh, it's very stimulating uh, being a col columnist. So, yeah, you stimulated advice, me. Yeah, go ahead, please. My, well, my advice is uh, stay intellectually stimulated. Mm -hmm. Keep keep talking. Keep writing. Uh, don't don't just sit back and let the world entertain you. Uh, make a real effort to continue to play the part, uh, particularly in the. Uh, uh, area that you like best. I have another saying that I have. Please. The only thing that seems to have retired is my salary. Uh, yeah, but you have Social Security making up for that, and I'm not feeling bad for you. You no, already no, that, confessed. That's not the point. The, the point is I'm still doing the job. Oh, well, I hope it, they pay you. The, the only thing that's different is they're not, they're not paying me. I'm oh, still geez. thinking, still writing, still talking to people. Right. And this That's podcast this podcast doesn't pay, but boy, does it pay off for me to talk to you. And my paid sponsors appreciate it. And I can't thank you enough. And one of your columns stimulated me so greatly that I need to call on you for your prognostication skills. And if you want to read, honestly, subscribe to the, to the Gazette, put in L-O-E-V-Y, and you can see some brilliant writing, including about waves and how politics has waves and the ninth wave and you see a big wave coming is that true do you still i see a big wave coming but uh there's been a, a counter wave raised and that's the uh supreme court uh turning the abortion issue back to the states uh that's going to energize a lot of voters uh, into uh, voting against the Republican Party. So uh, I wrote an article on wave watching, and that's just what we've been doing. Uh, that wave got off to a great start, but uh, it's got to get over the problem of the abortion issue being brought in. If the election were just going to be about inflation and Joe Biden and the supply chain, uh, that red wave would be in great shape. But uh, uh, the uh, Democrats are getting a big help uh, from the reintroduction of the abortion issues. So right now, my view is the wave is still there. It's not big as it was. Uh, we have uh, the only hope for the Republicans now is the abortion issue will 
get old and get tired uh, by November. Maybe part of the reason for the leak. Anyway, I have had Heidi Ganahl on my episode 102, along with Jared Polis. Give me a Colorado podcast who's done that. Joe O'Day has been my guest, so has Pam Anderson. Do these Republicans have a chance in this wave election you're forcing? Uh, if uh, uh, I would say that if inflation remains bad, I hate to say it because, of course, inflation is the worst thing that can happen to retired people on fixed incomes. But uh, if the inflation issue, the supply chain issue, if there's a fall resurgence of uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, I think any Republican has a chance. One of the characteristics of waves is they're amazing just how far up the beach they go. In this case, just how far the wave will go at knocking Democrats out of office. Oh, it's a perfect column. And some waves recede so fast. And you have the gift of historical perspective coupled with extraordinary brain and writing talent. This is your first podcast. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. I hope it's not the last. And feel free to say anything else. I I can't believe how brilliant you were. And honestly, I feel this was my luckiest interview ever. I stumbled into so many famous people. Who did I miss? Uh, Say that again. No, I'm trying to think. You dropped so many big names of celebrities you've encountered. Dwight Eisenhower, I mean, Earl Warren, uh, this guy, Kekal, who I'm going to have to learn about. Is there a good book about him? I'm just... I'm just wondering if there's a great story that I missed. We can save it for next time, but I bet you have others you're thinking of right now. Uh, well, please uh, call on me anytime. I, I will. thoroughly enjoy it, and I thoroughly enjoy supporting the uh, alumni of our college, uh, particularly those who were in my classroom. So uh, this has been a great pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much, Professor Levy. Best of luck, and uh, I will talk to you again. You are a brilliant man, and thanks for educating me. Well, thank you for all your compliments. I do appreciate it. All right. And uh, you've done well as one of our graduates. We're very proud of you. Well, there you go. I appreciate that. I I am a big uh, promoter of Colorado College, and I, I realized how lucky I was to be under the tutelage of all you guys back in the day, just as you had lucky breaks in your life, I've had a number of them too. Yes. Well, you know, they say when you graduate, the faculty is to be there beaming. Well, I'm focusing my beam on you. So thank you very much. Thanks, Professor. Good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or 
I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour, my traveling troubadour. How are you, Craig? Welcome back. Thank you. You are so busy. Who takes care of all those lookout renovations when you are gone? Um, I don't know. A staff of thousands. (laughs) Well, we have we have um, we have uh, um, policies in place. Good and protocols. Yes. What about the band? Who are you performing with this weekend? Now, this weekend, it's Papamo and the Vipers. Papamo is our fearless leader playing B3 organ and accordion, and we play Zydeco music and other Gulf Coast sounds. I'm glad you're talking about somebody playing their organ, because the song you've provided today, perfect as always, in so many ways, it's got an organ in it. Am I right? A keyboard of some type. Yes, as I remember. You don't remember, but I've listened to it about five times. You remember the opening line of your song? You say something that I don't understand. Right. Yeah. That's uh, something that I help you with because, one, your hearing is going. That's part of it. And, two, there are some words that you are not up on. But you taught me a word this week, and it came up in an article I read. Sisyphean. Right. Tell everybody how you explained that to me. May I correct your pronunciation? Please. Sisyphean. Or at least that's the way I would okay. put it. I, I don't know if it's, if you know, it could be both. All right. I, now, uh, that can be resolved. But, but keep going. But I delight in correcting you whether yes, I'm right, I know. Whether I I'm like right or it not. Too. Yeah. So Sisyphean, yes. The, the uh, I think probably Greek mythology, right? The, the poor sop who spent, spends eternity pushing a, a boulder up a hill and having it roll back down and then continuing that task now, yet again. Now, you said sop. Don't you mean sap? Well, poor he's, sap? He's both. No, or maybe no, poor sop. sop. Maybe it's Sisyphean. I don't know. Yeah, I think a sop in this case. We might have to have a breakup. After all, this song that you wrote, it's, a, it's not just a breakup song. It's sort of a desperate breakup song. You had all your dreams wrapped up in some chick... Give us the backstory. Who, what, where, when? Uh, 
<laughs> you presume that I remember. Um, I can start. Don't start. Don't set me out to lying to you. But um, I think it's just a general idea of there are some people you you talk to, some people you know, and they know it all, no matter what. And so you can't you can't really tell them anything. They're not open to your to your suggestions. Have you ever thought about that expression? You wrote this song. You're so original, but have you ever been called a know-it-all? Just by my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Both Mr. Oblivious and Mr. Know-it-all. It seems contradictory, but all of us get a little sure of ourselves. And I love this song. And toward the end, you say it's like talking to a really steep wall or something like that. But the music is profound. I love the lyrics, but this week, this is why it's perfect. Because I had my old professor of political science on named Bob Levy, and he really does know it all. I mean, he's wise, he's seen it all, and when it comes to poli sci, he, you mention a guy and he's got a story, and I just loved it. So um, I wanted to talk to you about that guy, because I told him, imagine this, you went to see you, and a lot of people you know, are fooled by your appearances here. They don't realize you have a graduate degree, an MBA, <laughs> and you're smart. And well, and have you ever had a professor who you thought, God, this guy's a genius? I've had some. Um, I've had some professors. Actually, some of the better professors I've had were were at UCD. Um, sure. You know, CU. Unfortunately, so many of the like first couple of years, you know, you're taking these big right. classes, and you don't have that that personal relationship. Colorado you know? College was different. That's why I liked it a lot better. Have you ever thought maybe I could have been a professor? Because this guy Bob Levy, he was a Baltimore guy, was a reporter, worked in the Capitol, but he was dedicated to getting his PhD at Johns Hopkins. Came to Colorado College in Colorado Springs in 1968. And he's been there ever since, ever since. And he's had a great life for 55 years and made a nice living. I think that's kind of a cool life. Well, I look forward to hearing. Yeah, and as for me, fifth grade teacher, I think, was more would have been more my ambition. Yes. All right. Well, there that's, you go. That's an important year. Can I just say, since I called you Mr. Oblivious, that Cassidy Hutchinson, the fact that you took attention to her, and you even read my column about her in the Colorado Sun. I thought she was terrific. And even as we speak on Friday, what is it, the 8th day of July, for our show July 9th, Pat Cipollone is talking to the January 6th committee. First of all, for all the money in the world, can you spell Cipollone? Probably not. Give it a go. Is it, pronounce it one more time. Cipollone. Use it in a sentence. His full name is Anthony Cipollone, and he was White House counsel under Donald Trump. C? Yes. I-P-I-L-O-N-I. C-I-P-O-L-L-O-N-E. Wow. But you know what's the cool thing that people remember him by? Because right now, can you remember his full name? Uh, Mr. Cipollone. Okay. But Andrew. A lot of people call him Patsy Baloney. Oh, that's, that's Patsy Baloney. Yeah, right. That's no. That's, but I hopefully he'll nice. tell the truth, and yeah. then that's all we want from the January sixth committee. And he's the guy who knows it all because he was in the room where it happened. 
Not to mix your song with Hamilton, but that could be a good mixtape, don't you think? <laughs> All right, we'll keep it in mind. All right. Well, I want everybody to hear your song. I really think it's spectacular. Of course, I'm a big fan. You're playing Lincoln's Roadhouse. I'm going to try to make this show as I put the podcast to bed on a Friday night. Troubadour, thanks for another beautiful song. And just one thing about the song I was going to mention before I go is these are uh, this was a harmony my daughters sang together, and uh, so I it, and it's they harmonized beautifully together. So check it out, Rachel and Sarah Gunders. Wow, Rachel Gunders rave reviews from her performance last week, episode one hundred three. But here we are, episode one hundred four, with Dave Gunders and somebody who knows it all. Now you say something I don't understand And that's why I got the feeling Playing a losing hand My fever's rising But I'm falling again And now I know Guess I knew it all along So I tell my tale To the stars up above they don't care about no unrequited love And quiet ain't a thing I'm getting much of in my head Ooh, I'm tossing and turning Begging and yearning Try to explain it to you when I come What can you
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. So how about that show? Dave Gunders, once again, perfect song. Somebody who knows it all. It has so many applications. Please, Pat Cipollone, come through with the truth. I'm looking forward to Tuesday, another hearing of the Jan 6 Committee. Liz Cheney, good luck. Bob Levy, thank you. You are a great professor at CC. Liz Cheney is evidence of that. You're a great interview, too. Thank you all for listening. Until next Saturday, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.